Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here again with my endless conversational partner, Jeff Madoff. Jeff is in his Upper West Side palace, and I'm in the foyer of the Four Seasons Hotel here in Palm Beach. We were just discussing great, great individual performances that are caught on film from the 1930s, 40s, and the ones we're going to show you are in black and white, which kind of focuses your eyes, actually, on the actual performance. We have three of them, and we're just going to discuss them one at a time. And we'll just start off. Jeff, I'll leave it over to you, because having sent two to you, you came up with another one. So I think the performance here is mind-boggling. And when we were doing our you know, lead up and going through the videos before we started the podcast, Jeff was watching me and my smile on my face just got bigger and bigger. I mean, I didn't have my mouth open, but it was really quite extraordinary. So Jeff, I'll let you do the introduction here. Thanks, Dan. You know, it's what's really fascinating is when you watch great performers, what you're also witnessing is a great collaboration and also great respect for each other because somebody has to lead, which means somebody has to follow in order for it to work. But they both have to be equally clear on the goals and what they're doing. And so I often look at business in a way being very much analogous or homologous to the entertainment world, where collaboration and everyone reading from the same script is what nets great results. And so how do you foster that kind of collaboration and what are the results of it? Dan, you had wanted to talk about this kind of collaboration, which I love and am deeply involved with with my play, personality. And one of the first things that caught you was Eleanor Powell with Fred Astaire, who were both just phenomenal performers. But I will say that, like in business, they both prepare before they perform. None of these things that we're going to show you, and these are actually fairly simple in terms of what it looks like, but it's incredibly complex, the talents and how they had to sync with each other in order to make it the piece of entertainment that made both Dan and I smile ear to ear. So tell us why Eleanor Powell and Fred Astaire caught you, Dan, and what did you get from it? Well, first of all, Fred Astaire, I think, is, you know, if you ask most people who know something about 20th century entertainment, you know, name top performers who just stayed on top for decades over long, long periods of time. And these people were in their prime when you and I were born, you know, when we were children. Before we were born before we were born, but I don't have much memory of watching entertainment before I was born. (laughs) Well, so you had a different thing in terms of my mom. You know, she always had things going on. And somehow, I think my dad putting a projector right up against her belly on the inside, and I was able to watch these things. You were kind of captured before you were born. Uh, It took me a while to... (laughs) Captive audience, by the way, during pregnancy, you're really a captive audience. Yeah. 
But the one I like this one is that most people, when they hear the word Fred Astaire and they know something about Fred Astaire, the first other name that comes to mind for most people is Ginger Rogers. And she was terrific. I mean, she was an amazing. And when she died, I remember she died much later than he did. And they said she could do everything Fred Astaire could do, only backwards and in high heels. uh, (laughs) I remember that, yes. Yeah, but Eleanor Powell was Ginger Rogers' match. I mean, if you watch her, and this, I guess this would have been in the 30s that they got together because this was right at the beginning when Fred Astaire really became famous. And a lot of people don't know the name Eleanor Powell. I didn't realize that when we got into this topic that I think there's at least four individuals that we have on three of the short videos that you actually met. So that brings it even more to home about what we're discussing here. So the first one that we're going to show you is Eleanor Powell and Fred Astaire. And here we go. You know, I I didn't want to interrupt that amazing tap dancing, but what's really interesting is, so people look at that and call it tap dancing, 
In fact, there are two musicians and they're playing the floor as mm. a percussion instrument. Yes. You know, which is so cool. And the other thing about it, which I think is so fabulous, is it's like watching great athletes or a great musician where what they do, what we see, looks easy. Mm. Try it. It's not. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it takes so many years of dedication. But when you get that good, mm. that preparation comes to the fore and it looks so flowing and simple. You know, in, in my world, having shot many dancers, ballerinas and so on, and then and modern dancers, but then working with models. Well, the models move well in a certain way, but nothing like a dancer. You know, they just don't have that grace. They weren't trained. And in order to be a good dancer, you are trained and you have to train an incredible amount to achieve that level of talent and performance. It's just fabulous. Well, I think the practice is one thing, and there's uh, years and years of practice on their own before they met each other. So the big thing is that you've developed two universes of talent in terms of these individuals, and they come together, and together they create something that's a third thing. You know, the performance is a third thing. That's right. And if you watch each of them individual, it's magical, but putting the two of them together where they're playing off each other is really, and you can see that what comes across is that Fred Astaire, you know, he's legendary. He's just a legendary thing. And what you see here is that he's almost upping the ante against her throughout the entire dance. He says, I'll raise the bet and let's see what you got. And she keeps going higher and higher with him. And then at a certain point, they're just completely together. It's a marvelous, marvelous thing. But a lot of people, if you don't know this, tap dancing requires just incredible muscle strength throughout your entire body, but your feet take a beating. Ginger Rogers said that, I mean, they would do for a single scene that shows up in the movie. She said, I'd have to stop because blood was coming out of my shoes. Mm -hmm. The one of them, she said, we did 23 takes in the same day, complete takes throughout the same day. And he said, no, no, I don't think so. And he he didn't even watch the reruns of the film because this was a full studio uh, cast and they had an audience there. You know, I mean, there's a lot of extras in this scene. You can see the audience at the end. They were doing it. The camera was shooting outward for them. And just the lighting, the quality of the lighting and everything was just really amazing. Well, and the other thing that you see is that there were no edits. This was a straight-through performance yep. for the two and a half minutes that they were dancing. And the way that they played off each other, like what you were talking about, and which looked like great fun, was amazing. And to be able to sustain that these days in a movie, that would probably be three or four days of shooting to piece it together and try to give you the razzle-dazzle of the editing and close-ups of the feet and an overhead shot. But you don't need it. It was one camera shot. It wasn't a shot from this side, you know, the way they do it today. There would be constant movement between different takes 
you know, and everything else. And that's all done in the editor's studio. This wasn't done in the editor's studio. Well, that's right. And, you know, the precursor to movies, of course, was live performance on stage. And so until a more sophisticated film vocabulary was brought to the fore, things were shot much simpler. But the thing about that is, although, you know, I would say people would argue that people's attention span was greater then, and that's probably true. There aren't so many things competing for it. But I would compare it to Adele you know, who is so fabulous that there's no light shows, there's no dancers. She's just got this talent that takes over the stage. And when you have someone who's that compelling, you don't need anything else. Hmm. And that's, you know, an example of the less is more. Now it's fun to do multiple cameras doing things. And even in those days, by the way, Busby Berkeley, who did these incredible things were very complex the way they were shot with overhead and multiple cameras. And he was the first person to really do that. And in some ways, the precursor to some of the music videos that we've seen. But I'm wondering, do you see the same relationship in terms of the collaboration necessary, the preparation necessary? Do you apply that at all to business? Oh, yeah. One is uh, from childhood, I've always been a really good team member. You know, I grew up on a farm. I'm the fifth child in a farm family. And the siblings were already off to school when I was born. So I just had to pick on my mom and dad to be useful. So I learned really, really young that every day look for something that she can do for mom especially and then dad. It just gives you a free pass to life when you have that attitude. But then as I've gotten, you know, more accomplished in my own business, like when I was 70, so I'll be 79 in a couple of months, I decided that to make life really, really interesting, it wasn't about me and my achievements for the rest of my life. It was just matching my skills up with someone at a very high level. And I could just take what I do, they are equally skilled in what they do, and we just put it together to create something that's a new thing. So that's my attitude, and I think you've been more in the collaboration business for much longer than I have, because you've been in the production world in a lot of different ways since I've known you, which goes back about 10, 11 years. But the magic is in the collaboration. Your own performance, your own skills, your own unique ability and everything else is preparation for collaboration. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because a lot of people like to put forth the idea that they did it alone, which is, you know, some chest beating, but it's not really true because there is so much support. Well, if you have that attitude, you die quickly. <laughs> I remember just a couple examples. I went to Rome and, you know, we had a guide who took us around for a couple of days before we were just on our own. And he took us to about five or six of the Bernini fountains, the great fountains of Rome. Most of them are by a single sculptor, you know. And I said, geez, I said, how do you get so much done? You know, he's got things in the Vatican. And so I looked it up and he had a company of 10,000 craftsmen. I mean, he had a lot of money flowing in, you know, he was a big deal. So he 
when you see the sculptures, he had finger guys, he had ear guys, he had nose guys, but he had the overall concept. He was putting together the overall concept. And then he had people who always worked with him. You know, you could just count on them. And then the modern day version of that in a completely different medium is Chihuly, the great glass blower. And you go to the Bellagio, if you've been in the lobby of the Bellagio, it's, it's huge. I mean, it's just really huge. And the whole ceiling is blown glass. But Chihuly was a glassblower who was, you know, very famous in his own right, but he had an accident where he lost sight in one eye. And you can't be a glassblower if you don't have two eyes. You know, you have to be able visually to control the whole field. And so what he did is that he just started doing rough designs, which he could do. Then he had a constant flow of really, really great glassblowers who needed someone to give them a purpose for their glass blowing. And so he's got, you know, a company of 200 now, and it was just amazing what he's done. So the whole point is that your own skill development in life and your own expertise that gets known and you get well paid for it, for me, that's just preparation for collaboration with equally great people. Oh, I'm totally with you. And, you know, when you think about, business and the arts, for instance. An example I think of is Andy Warhol, who called his group the factory. And that's because he had so many people working on each piece of art. He could have never been as prolific as he was if he did it all himself. And I had an artist in my class, Zaria Foreman. Look up her work. It's phenomenal. These photorealistic glacial landscapes and they're just absolutely magnificent and she does them all with her fingertips and it's phenomenal when you see these and she said as demand grew for her work she realized that she couldn't meet that demand if she was doing everything herself from start to finish and she said you know at first i felt like i was cheating because i would have somebody prepare the canvas i would have somebody else do the undercoat you know Each step, like Bernini, defined what they did so the whole would come together and work, and she could turn out more work. So it was always her vision, but she had the workers, so to speak, you know, the people she collaborated with to help execute on that. And then she said, I realized so many of the artists did that. She said, as an artist, I never even really knew that until she went into it because she thought, no, no, I'm cheating. I'm not going to cheat on my art. So that collaboration, when you're trying to bring about a result, whether it's something on canvas, the glass ceiling, any kind of result in business, everybody's got to have their eye on the same goal as defined and as agreed upon and then the talents to share so that they can execute on that idea. Yeah. I wanted to show another one because these two are, for the most part, completely not known. Like, I will bring up their name when people are talking about performers from mid-century or first half of the 20th century. And that they're just not known. But when you watch the two of them together, you'll say, oh, I think Eleanor and Fred were really good, but this may be a notch higher. So... Talk about the Nicholas brothers. 
the Nicholas brothers, you know, it was really interesting because they're, of course, known in vaudeville circuits and so on in live theater. And they're extraordinary talents, and there were very few avenues of display for Black performers. And so they would often be kind of the standout number in a movie when they had like about three minutes, but they blew everything else off the screen because they were extraordinary. And I was fortunate to meet, I don't remember his first name, for sure, but the older Nicholas brother who lived to be quite an old age, and I saw him perform in person. And I think he was, I don't remember how old he was exactly, but probably in his 80s, and still very lean, still moved amazingly well. And when you see the two of them together, watch them, think about what you saw with Fred Astaire and Eleanor Powell, the complementary movements and what they did. And then we're going to go to something else, which does this vocally instead of physically, which is really cool. But I will share the Nicholas Brothers. This is such a joy to watch. It's just insanely cool. They're just marvelous performers.
My groin hurts when I watch that. Yeah. We should just do that for one of our podcasts, just a dance routine. You know? <laughs> I'd love to. You know, the thing that's so cool about that is it's almost like a physicalization of a great brainstorming session. Yeah. You know, just these ideas just rebounding off each other. And again, they have to be so in sync, not to mention the musicians who are sitting there playing and they're jumping a few inches away from them and they're just keeping playing and have the faith they're not going to get kicked. And by the way, the audience should know that the singer at the beginning was Cab Calloway. Oh, yeah. And he was a great band leader. And he's a trip to watch himself just conduct. He's so much fun. Yeah, there's a great routine that the Nicholas Brothers are actually in, and it's Benny Goodman's Sing, Sing, Sing. But it's with Cab Calloway and his band, and Louis Armstrong is featured. Gene Krupa plays Gene, drums. Oh, yeah, of course, Gene Krupa, yeah. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Yeah, phenomenal. But the other thing is that it was very interesting that in the... Eleanor Powell, Fred Astaire one, they use the mirror floor as a second dimension, okay? Here, they use their shadows on the wall as a second dimension. So you had the two dancers, but then you had their shadow dancing uh, on the wall. The cinematography was just amazing on this. I will say here, they cheated because there were several camera takes on this one. Yes, yeah. <laughs> the physicality of what they do is absolutely astounding. Yep. It's just absolutely astounding. And it'll just show you where yoga will get you if you <laughs> yes. at a certain point you can actually turn it into some form of entertainment. That's why I've always found yoga kind of boring because you know, I just didn't get the impact, the entertainment impact of yoga. <laughs> I've started some conversations with this guy, Andrew Burns, who was on the Yale panel that I moderated at the Sci City for Innovative Thinking. And it's really interesting. He finances businesses that are run by people who have some background and a fairly significant background. I'm not talking about stars now, but people who are in the performing arts. And his belief is, and it's bore out in some of the companies that he's been working with, is that what you learn in the performing arts in terms of collaboration, uh, improvisation, all the things that you have to do to pull off a good performance, he believes the discipline of being in the performing arts enhances one's ability in business to do the same in order to achieve a goal and getting those forces marshaled together and all of that. Mm -hmm. What is your take on that? Well, or athletics, like team athletics too is, I've got a variety of different collaborative backgrounds. I have, you know, a growing number of people with special forces, Delta Force, Navy SEALs, you know, Army Rangers and everything like that. And they do very, very well because you have to constantly watch what your other team members are doing, you know. And they said that you get to the point where you take the bullet so one of your team members doesn't take it. It's the, you're so confident about your own capabilities that you can go to another dimension with someone else. 
And what about yourself and your desire, which maybe a lot of people don't know unless they've listened to every one of our podcasts, your own desire to be in theater? Yeah, and I was, for a five-year period between 18 and 23, you know, I was personally in five or six plays, major role. When I was in Korea and I had the entertainment program, I was the coordinator for half of South Korea. And I was just a draftee. I mean, I was drafted into the army. And when I got to basic training, there were two things that came across me of how the other draftees were looking at the next two years. And most of them just said, it's a wasted two years. And I said, no way, I'm going to waste two years. And the other thing is, never volunteer for anything. And I immediately said, gee, I wonder what happens with the person who volunteers for everything. You know, and sort of entrepreneurial instincts there. So because of my theater background, and we were in a community where there were men, women, and children. It was looked like Sioux City, Iowa. If you didn't look above the walls, it looked like Sioux City, Iowa. When America goes overseas, they take America with them. So I had children, so I put on a full-blown production of Oliver, the music of Oliver, when I was 22 years old. And we had a cast of about 60, 65. We did it with a piano score, the whole thing. And we had a live pianist who did the, the music. And it kind of got it out of my system. I knew I wasn't going to do this as a career, but I had gotten to explore. But I treat my business, Strategic Coach, as a production that has, you know, different teams of skilled people who are all linked together to put on. We do about 500 workshop days a year, you know, with our clients. And it's very meticulous. Behind each workshop is about 100 methods that people have to master. And this is backstage. This is backstage. Everything has to put together. I mean, the book on backstage is about this thick. The book on front stage is about this thick. There's no question about it. Anything where you have to be good yourself, and then you have to jump to another level, and then you have to master a whole other skill of how your skill meshes with other people's skill. If it's outside of business, it pays off when you get into business. Yeah, I think so too. And it always, to me, seemed like a very natural comparison where a lot of times people in business dismiss the performing arts as being kind of frivolous or not important or not being grounded. And in fact, what they pull off <laughs> is a pretty complex exercise. Yeah. In working on the play, one of the first things that hit me, and this was actually just the workshop. And then I experienced it on a different level, a higher level in Malvern, both of which you saw those productions. But the first thing you do is a table read and all the other different creative departments are observing it. set, lighting, sound. Everybody's observing what's going on. So they get a sense of the play and how it sounds. And I'm sitting there before we start, before the director, Sheldon Epps, says, OK, let's go. We'll start on this. And he reads all the stage direction because we're literally sitting around the table. And there are like 56 people in the room. And I thought, wow, I was sitting at home typing this out <laughs> not too long ago. And now look at this. And 
now we've got probably 30 people who are just administrative, the different aspects of it, and the production has grown substantially. But it's all those same dynamics. And I think there's a, I don't know whether it's a skill or a personality trait, but in order to accomplish the kinds of things that are so much fun to watch that we just did, we'll show one more, the ability to actually listen. Mm-hmm. And I've been in so many situations where people don't feel they need to listen. And I think that's a critical failure, whether you're doing a play, trying to execute a play on the field in sports, or if you're in the conference room, mm-hmm. if you're just waiting for you to talk mm-hmm. and you're not taking it in, that's a huge shortcoming. Well, I was thinking because several podcasts back, you were just going through your Chicago auditions. So you had done New York auditions that played up to the first opening on the road with Philadelphia. But that was okay because you could use your New York cast for it. But when you went to Chicago, first of all, it's two years or no, last year you did the Philadelphia. Yeah, March of 22. Yeah. But you were going into a new city and you were doing a 12-week run. And actors, you know, if you don't lock them up, they have to entertain other offers and that. But you were able to hang on to the substantial core of what you had created at the first two steps, the workshops in New York and then the opening. You were talking about it's really tough getting actors for musicals because they have to be actors and then they have to be singers and they have to be dancers. Okay, but the fourth one, I got to feel that why the ones you chose, there were people who had all three of those, but they didn't have the fourth one. And that is that they're really good at teamwork. And the fourth thing is really, I have to say that all of the dancers, they know that's what they have to do because they aren't going out there and doing a solo performance. And it's fascinating because I never had the opportunity prior to starting this play to work up close with the choreographer. I did it for a few commercials, but not nearly as involved. I mean, those were 30 seconds. This is a two-hour enterprise. All the little pieces that you have to master before you even start putting it together. And, you know, we have a marvelous choreographer, Edgar Godino. He did a Temptations musical, Ain't Too Proud is the name of it, but he was the associate choreographer on that. But to watch how a routine gets built, that's another thing when you're watching Eleanor Powell and Fred Astaire watching the Nicholas Brothers, every one of those steps, each little part is what then ended up the whole. But they had to master each part. You know, and it's phenomenal. With the Nicholas Brothers, you wonder, you know, so who came up with the stare-up idea? Where did that happen? You know, and just the different things that went into that are so marvelous. But, you know, when you relate that to business, when you listen to your fellow collaborators, when you respect other ideas and are open to that, you can come up with incredible, incredible things. I think one of those incredible things, another example, we could go to the Judy Garland, Mel Torme. <laughs> this was from Judy Garland's TV show, which I think was late 50s, maybe very early 60s. Again, black and white. And the simplicity 
of just the two of them singing. And I'd like to sort of plant the seed in the listeners' heads. Because this is, by the way, a, <laughs> we could put the uh, links to those three yeah. numbers on there, you know. But listen to this singing and think about it as dancing. And you'll get an idea of how much these two things relate so thoroughly. So shall I go to that, Dan, and yeah. play? Yeah. Okay. With his light brown derby and his bright green tie, he was quite the handsomest of men. I started to yet, so I counted to ten, then I counted to ten again. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Clang, 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 went the trolley. I nearly missed the trolley. Ding, 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 went the bell. Awfully glad I caught it. Sing, 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 went my heartstrings. From the moment I saw him, I fell. Fell down and got right back up again. Shut, shut, shut went the motor. I think I'm getting nauseous. Bump, bump, bump went the Sure train. as I am Tom Drake. Thump, thump, thump went my heart strings. When he smiled, I could feel the car shake. Rattle and roll, boy, what a ride. I tipped my hat. I tipped my hat. I took the seat. I took the seat. I said, he hoped he had something on my feet. Oopsie. I asked her name. Yes. I held my breath. I just got his mind. I hope he did the dozen scare me half to death. Buzz, 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 buzz. Well, here's where I get off. Flop, flop, flop went the wheel. Awful nice to meet you. Stop, stop went my heart strings. As he started to leave, I took hold of his sleeve with my hand. Hey, you down my coat. Cause I forgot to bring home the bread and milk and cheese and crackers What am I gonna do now with this crazy woman With her high starch collar and her high top shoes And her hair piled high upon her head Oh boy, I'm dead And like I said, look out now Get, get, get it, what we say Get, get, get it, what we say And hey, hey, daddy, hey, better help her milk for me I'm in trouble now, what am I gonna do I got the blues, here's more bad news This little lady stepped upon my shoes And now I need a Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and you think about a symphony orchestra, everyone reading from the same sheets, the conductor keeping it all together, all the different individual pieces that happened. I mean, again, it's so much like how a good business runs. Yeah. It's just incredible. And, and Again, I think that, at least to me, hearing Mel Torme and Judy Garland, their vocalizing is not unlike watching those amazing dance numbers. And, yeah, and exquisite timing. I mean, the and they're sitting there and they're listening, they're listening, they're listening. We've talked about this on previous podcasts before. The combination of great listening and timing is the foundation of all skill. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, isn't that what one does back in the early days when people would apprentice? Mm -hmm. You know, you watch the masters who know what they're doing and you learn from that by listening and by asking questions. Mm -hmm. But the other part of it that we didn't talk about, 
what I think is absolutely essential is respect the process. Mm-hmm. Trust the process, respect the process. I think a lot of people don't understand the notion that things take time mm-hmm. and that there is a process to doing something well. Yeah. One of the things that is a temptation that, first of all, makes people solo performers and not collaborative performers is the fact that we have multiplier communication mediums, okay? And that if you get something, a particular act together, you can be known by millions of people very, very quickly, you know? And I think that the temptation is you'll get frozen with what hit the spot and you won't take your skill any further. Yeah. And that is huge because I think, to me, the fuel of creativity is curiosity. Mm-hmm. But what if? Mm-hmm. But what if we did this? Yeah. You know. But I think the long period of developing your skill before the world really knows about it is really crucial. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it was interesting because way back when, when it was vaudeville theaters and plays that dominated the entertainment landscape, you know, before movies and before television, you didn't have the wide exposure. So before you got into in front of a really big audience, you had performed and performed and performed and you had nailed it down. And even up into the 60s with comedians, you know, the big break was when they got on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That was a big break that could launch a career. And conversely, if you got on there and didn't deliver, that could kill your career. (laughs) But what happened is the temptation to go for the big money and the big platform seduced a lot of people, but they had nothing to follow it up with because they didn't have any reservoir yeah, you have massive reach, but your talent growth, your capability growth gets suspended because you think you're great. You know, you think you're great. But then it's always a bit of a sad thing to watch people who are very famous in their teens. And I think this is the topic for another podcast, but I'm having my best career in my 70s. And I think you're having your You're not having your best career, but you're having a career where it's on a big stage. I mean, you were always part of the backstage. You were part of the video. And now this is a a major, major front stage experience. I think the first name on the billing is yours. (laughs) And I know that right from the beginning, the whole team got mentioned and everything. But I think that probably if you looked at your career from your basement movie theaters when you were a child to where you are right now. You can look at the whole thing as R&D for the particular thing you're working on right now. That's right. Yeah, and I feel the same way. You know, people say, you know, you're writing, you have podcasts, people are really starting to know you and everything else. And I said, yeah, for seven years we're R&D and now I'm I'm starting to get serious. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah, we're almost at your hard edge here. So, Well, I think we should say thank you to our audience and that this has been anything and everything and a whole new approach that I have no idea we're going to go into, but it was great. And I hope if you're listening to this, 
seek these performances on YouTube. They're great fun to watch, and hopefully the message that we're giving resonates with you. I guess, again, we proved the anything and everything aspect of this podcast, Dan. Yeah, this was actually the first one where we get to be spectators for part of the production. <laughs> yes, the true. Yeah, and it was great because they were just little nuggets. You know, I think the longest was about three minutes. Right. And there's just tons of this stuff on YouTube. I mean, if you look up any famous artist from mid-century or 30s and 40s, and they had cameras and they could record, we can now look back probably certainly 80 years, 80, 90 years, we can look back now. And the quality is good. They've been remastered. A lot of the work has been remastered. But it's a real treat. The neat thing is, is these people last forever now, you know. Right. I'd like to also ask our listeners to leave a comment. That would be great if you did that. I guess it's fair to say, you know, at the end of a performance, since we can't hear you applaud, but we hope you enjoyed it anyhow. <laughs> Good. On the sidebar on Google, you should have thumbs up. You used to see hundreds of thumbs up going up. On, on yes. The Anyway, a great pleasure as always, Jeff. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com. <laughs>